The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We like dark tales here on Time Suck. Stories of murderous serial killers and accounts of cult leaders' madness. Uh, some of our most popular episodes. And I get it. Fear is fun when the danger isn't right there in front of you. It's nice to have that little adrenaline spike. Well, Edgar Allan Poe clearly loved a little fear himself. He put that uh, primal emotion in so much of his literary work. Poe didn't uh, kill anybody, or at least according to most historians, go mad, but he loved to spin a dark tale. He's considered the founder of the modern psychological horror tale. Many literary giants of today consider him to be the world's first true suspense author. He's the inventor of the detective novel. Uh, considered to be the inventor of the, the the modern short story in America as well, the godfather of the spooky mystery. He wasn't just a mystery slash suspense writer, as uh, the author many consider to be today's master of suspense and horror, Stephen King. He was the first. High praise. And yet he toiled in poverty for uh, pretty much his entire adult life. He was miserable for most of it. Poe is so ingrained in us, so deeply encoded into our cultural DNA that we no longer recognize him, says Lewis Bayard, whose novel The Pale Blue Eye puts Poe at the center of a mystery during his days as a West Point cadet. And yet whenever we write a mystery, whenever we write horror, whenever we write science fiction, whenever we write about obsession, we're following in his tracks. I like the thought about no longer even recognizing the influence Poe uh, po has over us. You know, we're all, the, uh, we're all the sums of our influences, but we often don't realize, you know, what those influences are, who they are. I'll use myself as an example of this. I knew very little about Poe before this past week, but now it's clear to me that he has influenced me a lot. I'm fascinated by the world around us, but more with the dark side of human nature than the uplifting a lot of times. Uh, I'm guessing you might be too. The first author I fell in love with as a kid, the man who sent me riding my bike to the library time and time again, reading every book that he'd ever written. Uh, at least the ones they carried as fast as I could. The man who sent me running to my mom's room in the middle of the night because I was scared half to death, tortured by my own imagination, was Stephen King. 
And there's a good chance there would be no Stephen King had there not been an Edgar Allan Poe, at least not the Stephen King we know and the one I still love. And had there not been a Stephen King, there might not be the me you know. Maybe I would have uh, never become so attracted to horror during those important critical developmental years. Maybe my comedy wouldn't have ended up so dark and inappropriate. Maybe all of my jokes would be about uh, the lighter side of life. Ugh. Sounds so fucking boring. Terrible. No dead squirrel puppet jokes? No longing for the violent deaths of inconsiderate strangers? Sounds terrible. So let's head back to source, or at least to one of the primary sources for much of our current relationship with horror and darkness. Let's head to the troubled early and mid-19th century life, the impoverished life of struggle and death, led by the raven, Edgar Allan Poe. You're listening to Talk Happy Friday, Time Stalkers. Happy June. It's bonus time. Hope you had a refreshing Memorial Day weekend. Uh, you know, hope you're enjoying wrapping up a shorter work week. And if you're at work, I hope this gives you a nice break. Because work can wait. It's time for Time Suck. I'm Lord Suckitude, the Suckmaster General, the Master Sucker, Dan Cummins. And you are listening to Time Suck. Welcome to the Cult of the Curious. Hail Nimrod. Hail Lucifina. Or be gone, Lucifina. If she's giving you trouble. Praise Bojangles. Praise Michael motherfucking McDonald, Triple M. And I hope Pootie and Juju are well. And I hope that Chikatilo is suffering. And I hope those pineys are licking up all the delicious puke they can eat. Who are these characters? I know many of you uh, newer to the show have been asking me that recently in your emails. So at the end of today's episode, I'll provide a little summary of what the inside jokes are, who these characters are, where they originated. Bring everybody up to speed. Not a bad idea probably to do that from time to time. Gets a little inside here on Time Suck. Uh, and today's Time Suck is brought to you by the Search and Shred app, a Time Sucker app, uh, which is either just hit or will be appearing very soon on the iTunes app and Google Play Store. I didn't check right before this recording. It should be out today. Just, I mean, it's fresh, fresh off the app press. Uh, the brain behind this app is Time Sucker and Space Lizard and just wonderful human being. I've met several times, Josh Wag. Such a good dude. And what is Search and Shred? We'll talk about it. Are you, are you having a hard time finding a worthy new addition to your band or simply wanting to have a jam session with musicians like yourself? Well, look no further. Search and Shred, the app, will help you find exactly what you've been looking for. Uh, Search and Shred helps you locate musicians nearby, the right kind of musicians. You can narrow your search by genre, instruments, styles. You can also buy and sell at instruments and equipment through the app. To participate in this groundbreaking app, users just create a profile that includes their location, age, music style, profile picture, and it lets you chat with other users to learn more about them before you decide to meet up. Even view their videos on their linked YouTube and SoundCloud accounts. You can also post events, attract the attention of various musicians in the surrounding area. So what are you waiting for, music creators? Let us help you minimize your search time so you have more time to shred. Join this amazing community. Download the Search and Shred app today. So I think it's very cool. And I love that the time sucker is behind it. Uh, doing my first AMA for you time suckers coming up. I've never done one of those, those ask me anythings. And I'm doing it via whatpods.com. I was informed that this uh, comprehensive podcast website has named Time Suck as one of the best comedy podcasts of 2018. I believe that list is coming soon. We'll, we'll see where we charted on it, but just honored to be on it. Uh, so for the few angry reviewers on iTunes who hate the comedic aspect of, uh, of Time Suck, uh, go fuck yourselves. All right, we made a fucking list, you sons of bitches. Thanks to the overwhelming majority of you, 
who do like it. And for the great reviews and ratings, uh, by the way, man, almost 4,000 now on iTunes, which uh, just makes you feel good, man. Just uh, so nice to know that the suck is continuing to spread. I actually finally did some kind of analytics the other day, and we've grown by 50% since January. So amazing, man. Thanks for continuing to spread the suck. It means so much. Word of mouth is the best way to uh, to keep this podcast going. I will be hosting this AMA uh, for 90 minutes on June 5th at whatpods.com. That's Tuesday, June 5th at 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time, 1.30 p.m. Pacific Time, and I'll be on there for 90 minutes ask, uh, answering all the questions I have time to answer. Uh, the live link for your AMA is whatpods.com slash AMA slash timesuck. I'll include that in today's episode description, the link. You can also rate timesuck on whatpod so people can find the show on their platform uh, by following another link I'll provide in the episode description. And uh, and I guess you have to make a whatpods account to leave questions pretty easy to do i think it's just like you just push it and put in your email address and uh come up with the password and then you need that just so you can use their website and uh and you know sign up to be able to ask questions and you can actually start posting questions now i know i noticed some people had already done that so you can post questions ahead of time uh the open house uh last night or i guess uh, sorry this is coming out i'm recording a day early so it'd be two nights ago this past tuesday so fun man people some time back or stopped by from all over the place some space lizards it was crazy coming up from California, Nevada, uh, Denver, Montana, Idaho, you know, Washington, Oregon, just all over. And uh, the guys from sweetboxdelivery.com stopped by. They brought cookies and pizza bagels. Those guys are awesome, man. They're time suckers. And they have a new business, you know, Sweetbox Delivery, which delivers within 100 miles of Spokane and really good stuff, man. Good cookies, bagels, pastries. Uh, you can get like, you know, savory bagels, savory pastries. And, uh, yeah, it was just really cool, man. Really cool to see everybody just talking about interesting things, having a good time. And I love whenever time suckers get together, it's like they've known each other forever. And, uh, hardly anybody that came here yesterday had had ever met before. So that was very cool. Thanks for uh, taking advantage of the Memorial Day sale, wiping out a lot of the store's goodies. We'll have the new Danger Brain merch in pretty soon. Excited to talk about that very soon when I know exactly when it'll be in. Uh, I'm in the Suck Dungeon again today, uh, recording in advance of the Tempe, Arizona dates with Reverend Dr. Josh Krell. Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins, coming in and out of the Suck Dungeon today. Uh, Lindsay and I are, in, are, are heading to Phoenix. Actually, as, as, as you hear this, we're in Phoenix. So if you're listening to this, you know, uh, Friday the 1st, I'll be at the Tempe Improv tonight. So I guess the, I guess the meet was, sorry, I'm recording two episodes today. I'm recording the Secret Suck in advance and the uh, bonus episode in advance. So I'm doing math, like, wait a minute, when is this coming out compared to today in real time? So uh, I guess the, the, the meet and little open house was a couple days ago. And I am in Phoenix now, and I hope I hope last night's uh, show went well because I had one last night with Garth, or excuse me, Garth, uh, Wayne and Garth, Gareth Reynolds from the Dollop Podcast. So hopefully I've had a great time with him already. Hopefully we're the, we're new BFFs, and uh, and we have more shows tonight and tomorrow night. And then uh, so get down to the Tempe Improv, and then next week Nation's Capital, DC and DC Flat Earth jokes getting told at the DC Draft House June eighth and ninth, June fifteenth and sixteenth. Des Moines, Iowa at the Funny Bone, July 12th and 14th, Orlando Improv, live podcast on the 15th, Comedy Store in La Jolla down by San Diego, July 20 through 22nd, Dayton, Ohio, Funny Bone, July 27th to 28th, more tour dates, so much more, dancummins.tv. And now I present to you your bonus episode, Edgar Allan Poe. Edgar Allan Poe did not invent the Tale of Terror. Let's be, let's be clear about that. He invented the slinky, 
And if not for the Slinky, he would have never written The Raven. He wouldn't have had the funds. He used his Slinky money to, uh, to, you know, have the time to be an author. I bet you didn't know that. I'm almost positive since I just made it up. But that would have been pretty sweet. If uh, the old Slinky would have been invented by Edgar Allan Poe. But seriously, he did not invent literary horror. Homer's uh, Odyssey, written sometime between the 12th and 8th century BCE, one of the world's oldest known examples of literature, uh, records Odysseus's confrontations with several witches, including Circe. And while it was not intended to be a scary story, it undoubtedly scared numerous readers. The Bible's first book of Samuel, written in the 5th or 6th century BCE, uh, reports Saul's consultation with the witch of Endor. The witch of Endor. All these ancient witches, man, doing their witchery. They're probably uh, witches in the same sense that Joan of Arc was a witch. So in the sense that they were not witches, probably just innocent women who didn't do what the uh, men of the time told them to do. So they were witches. The ancient Greeks, they had more than witches to deal with. They also uh, wrote several accounts of ancient vampires called, among other names, the Strigoi for you Strain fans. Uh, We touched on that in the Vlad Dracula bonus suck last year. Uh, Shakespeare didn't write traditional horror, but he did intend to scare his audiences from time to time during some of his dramas, such as Macbeth, where the ghost of Banquo, the Scottish man Macbeth paid assassins to kill, haunts Macbeth at the banquet. There are also those three creepy witches in Macbeth. Man, some more damn unruly women showing up. Uh, to reference that Vlad the Impaler suck again, there were scary tales of a bloodthirsty madman based upon Vlad the Impaler circulating around uh, central, northern, and southeastern Europe as early as the end of the 15th century. But still, these tales weren't uh, horror stories in the modern sense. They were tales of, you know, this bad man did these naughty things to those poor people. Uh, there were the Krampus tales. Remember tales of the half goat, half demon we learned about way back in that Krampus suck, way back in Time Suck 14. Uh, those went back to, you know, Germanic pre-Christian folklore, tales of a monster who would eat naughty Bavarian children during the end of summer har- harvest celebrations. And, you know, in most cultures had some type of scary monsters in their mythology tales to scare kids before bed to make them behave. But again, not horror stories in the modern sense, you know, folklore, more of this horrible creature does this and that awful thing and rips off this and stabs you here and has horns and fangs and comes from hell. And if you're not careful, he's going to get you. Uh, the horrible acts are committed upon characters you don't really know or care about. They're, they're wooden. They're one-dimensional. The monster eats children, but you don't know who those kids are. You know, the monster attacks a family, but you don't have any personal investment in that family as a reader. I mean, sure, it sucks. The family got eaten. But uh, who is that family anyway? Are they like your family? Maybe. Maybe not. You don't know. In modern horror, when it's done at its best, you know the characters very well, right? The better you know them, the more closely connected you feel to them, the scarier it is, the more terrible it is when the bad shit happens to them. Scary because, you know, since they've been more fleshed out, they're more real, they're more relatable. And now you're able to see yourself, you know, in the story that much more clearly. There's nothing scarier than imagining that uh, all the bad shit could be happening to you. You know, it's all fun and games until a monster comes after you or, or someone who's like you. A modern Krampusy tale, you know, would be more personal. It'd be a story maybe about some guy with a family and bills, and he's he's getting in financial trouble. You know, and he's gonna he's gonna lose the family home. He doesn't know how to feed his four kids. You know, you spend forty pages getting to know this family. You start to like him. The dad works hard. You know, sure he has problems. Maybe maybe he's a little grouchy, but you know he tries his best. You know, you get to know the mom. You know, she's doing her best to raise the kids. You know, she wishes dad was home more to help out, but you know they're doing the best they can. They have problems similar to the problems you have. They have one kid who won't fucking listen. You know, <laughs> whatever. They have one kid who's easy. You can relate to them. Maybe one of the kids is super sick with soaring medical bills. They're going to financially ruin, you know, the family. 
And then one night, while Dad's alone in the office, half drunk, feeling sorry for his predicament, for himself, in a weak moment, he kind of secretly thinks that, God, it would just be better for the sick kid to die. It's a horrible thought. But, you know, if the kid died, you know, the medical bills wouldn't jeopardize the, the future of the whole family. You know, and then suddenly when he's thinking this terrible thought, he hears a creepy voice, you know, just like, I'll take him. Give him to me. I'll set you free. And some crampusy looking demon thing appears, offers the man a, a life of ease, fortune, and good health for his family. You know, all, you know, the family except for the sick kid. He's going to take that kid's soul. He's going to take that kid's soul as payment uh, for the for the rest of uh, the good he's going to do for the family. And in a weak moment, the father accepts the deal. But then immediately he regrets it. He consults an old Romani woman who, who knows how to break a deal with the Krampus demon. You know, how did he know where to find this old Romani woman? You know, who knows about shit like this? Why does she have to be Romani? Who the fuck knows? Right? This isn't a well-thought-out script, but I'm kind of getting into it. But when the man tries to break the deal with the demon in a fit of rage, Krampus appears, kills the, the gypsy woman before some sort of creepy sitting around a pentagram of candles in a dark room uh, revocation ceremony can be completed. Before she dies, she warns the man that now the, the Krampus is going to come for his whole family. He just, he's coming. He's coming for you all. All your souls are lost. And then the rest of the tale of the Krampus, you know, thing, he picks off members of the man's family one by one till only the father and the sick child are left alive. And then Krampus takes even the last sick child in front of the father, takes him down to hell, and then lets the man live with the memory of the deal he made. Now look, I know that's not some great horror movie synopsis. I literally just made it up in a few minutes. I'm not saying it's even terrifying, but it does illustrate the difference between modern and ancient horror tales. Right? There's so many more details. You know, you're, you're inside of uh, the guy's head. You're hearing his thoughts. You're getting to know these people. They're fleshed out, you know, and obviously much more in a, in a real story. And I wouldn't have even known how to make that shit up had it not been for Edgar Allan Poe. Now, to be fair, you know, he, he didn't usher, you know, the, the genres of horror, mystery, and suspense into the modern style out of thin air. He didn't live in a vacuum. Others shortly before his time were already writing spooky, more modern-type tales, such as Daniel Defoe, author not known for horror. He's best known for writing Robinson Crusoe, a book second only to the Bible, by the way, in the number of languages it's been translated into. Um, he just took it further. He just took it further and, you know, and really— uh, kind of defined it that much more. And Defoe, by the way, in late 17th and uh, early 18th century, uh, he's a popular you know, uh, English writer, and he penned a number of stories that are today classified as horror tales, one of which is The Apparition of Mrs. Veal, published anonymously in 1706, attributed, though, by historians to Defoe. And this is an early example of a modern-ish horror tale. It's a tale of a Canterbury resident, Mrs. Bargrave, who's visited by Mrs. Veal, an old friend, former neighbor, who says that she'd like to catch up before heading off on a journey. The pair talks uh, some books on, on death and friendship uh, before Mrs. Veal asks for her friend to, to write a letter to her brother concerning the number of gifts she would like him to make. Uh, she discloses that her locked cabinet contains a purse filled with gold, all this like weird stuff she's telling him. And after a long visit, Mrs. Veal says that she, uh, she's got to be going. She walks away. She's watched by Mrs. Bargrave until she's out of sight. And then later that day, Mrs. Bargrave is told that Mrs. Veal died the day before. So she was talking to a ghost. Dun, dun, dun. 1764, English art historian, politician, and author Horace Walpole basically invented the genre of gothic horror when he published The Castle of Otranto. Uh, Walpole uh, combined medieval ideas about the supernatural with the realism of the modern novel, created an atmosphere of terror, a world in which anything could happen and often did. Giant helmet falls from the heavens, crushing Conrad on his wedding day. Immense limbs appear within the castle itself. Mysterious blood flows. A bunch of boogeyman wandering in and out of the tale. But even in these tales, you didn't really get into the minds of the main character or the main characters. 
You didn't sit and stew in the dark recesses of their minds like you would with Poe. The true use of psychological horror through first-person narration just hadn't been done in the way Poe did it before, even though that's the way uh, most of these you know, stories are written now. Uh, and Poe would inspire you know, other writers such as Ambrose Pierce, uh, Bierce, excuse me, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft to write horror stories who would uh, inspire still others, leading us to Stephen King and other authors of today. Poe used the main character as a first-person narrator to heighten suspense, draw readers into the character situations, giving readers an intimate view of the character's psyche, providing an, an additional layer of realism to the tale, allowing the readers to feel more connected to, therefore more afraid for the primary characters, right? Again, like I, like I talked about earlier, we're scared when they're scared. And again, with modern horror, we, we feel their fear, you know? Stephen King's It. We experience Pennywise through the lives of the kids, the piece of shit spider clown terrorizes and or murders. All right, if that was a spoiler alert for you, by the way, where the fuck have you been for the last 20 years? Uh, the famous gothic horror novel Frankenstein was written just before Edgar Allan Poe's time as an author. It got close to what he was doing. It was written by Mary Shelley, published in 1818 when Poe was uh, nine years old. This tale comes close, again, uh, but still falls short compared to Poe. It's told primarily through the narration of the character Robert Watson, who never deals directly with the monster Frankenstein. Watson is the, is the captain of a North Pole-bound ship that becomes trapped between sheets of ice. His crew sees a, a dog sled being driven by some gigantic figure that we find out later is the monster Frankenstein. Then a few hours uh, after seeing this monster, the crew finds a, a nearly frozen man named Victor Frankenstein who tells his tale of creating the monster to Robert who relays this story via letters to his sister, Margaret Walton Seville. Now, the horror of the story comes from the reader's discovery that a monster has been brought to life by a scientist. However, the monster represents and presents, I guess, no real danger to the primary character. It's one man telling another man's stories about a monster that escaped, and then that man writing letters about this monster uh, to his sister. And this is generally how the reader learns of this monster, through these letters. Well, with Poe, he took you directly inside the head of either the monster itself Right or the man tormented by the monster, which was and is arguably scarier. Small change, yet revolutionary. Uh, one of Poe's most masterful uses of first-person narration in a horror story is the telltale heart. At the outset of the story, the paranoid narrator hastens to assure the reader that he is of sound mind and body. However, as the story progresses, the reader witnesses the narrator's mind unravel as it's racked with paranoia. At the height of the man's distress, the reader follows his emotions as they build inside his mind. I talked still faster and louder, and the sound, too, became louder. It was a quick, low, soft sound, like the sound of a clock heard through a wall, a sound I knew well. Louder it became, and louder. Why did the men not go louder, louder? The reader doesn't know whether to believe that it is impossible for a dead man's heart to continue beating, or whether to trust that the narrator's passionate insistence that he is sane and that these events truly happened exactly the way that he relates them. This uncertainty, mystery, adds another layer of terror to the story. The feel of uncertainty and of devolving mental state of the narrator. You wonder if uh, you or someone around you could have their mind unravel in the same way. Well, in addition to being inventive creatively, the life Poe chose to lead was in itself uh, inventive, right? He, he uh, and just uh, pioneering. He tried to make a living purely as an author of fiction, which was an insane proposition in the early 19th century. It just wasn't done. It had not been done before in America by anyone of note at the very least. Uh, and I know that probably sounds crazy now when now successful authors make so much money. You know, the ones who are household names like Poe, so much fucking money. Think about Stephen King. <laughs> this is fascinating to me. King makes, according to Forbes, 
about $40 million a year. $40 million a year. According to various web sources, he's made about a half a billion dollars, half a billion dollars in his literary career. That's, that's so much money. James Patterson, according to Forbes, made $95 million in 2016. That is so much money. Can you imagine making $95 million in one year? You, you could buy two neighboring oceanfront or lakefront properties, tear down the homes, build a fucking custom compound, the most extra, like whatever, money's no object, just the, the best, most decadent compound you want. You can have like sport court, infinity pool, private dock, you know, custom speedboat, dream cars. Right in the garage, brand new, pay it all off. Everything's paid for completely. Put the rest of the money in an account. Pay all of your living expenses going forward off just, you know, just the interest of the, uh, you know, 20, 30, 40 million dollars you still got set in the account. And then, uh, you know, you could set up future generations of your family to be wealthy. Just that you could like set up a thing where the money would just never stop coming in. And that's one year's income. But back in the early 1800s, no one in America made that kind of living, not even close as a writer. No one made a living as a novelist at all for a variety of reasons. For one thing, U.S. copyright laws were poorly enforced and varied from state to state. I didn't know that. Uh, it's pretty easy just to blatantly plagiarize somebody else's shit, just get away with it. So people did that. It was also a chaotic time for printers. Publishers were popping up quickly and quickly going bankrupt. I mean, this is a time when like towns are popping up and then going under. Uh, this happened over and over again, you know, and if, and if the printer went bankrupt, the authors didn't get paid. You know, even if the printer stayed in business, uh, authors were just universally just just not given very good contracts, right? Um, and, and they didn't generally have a lot of money to give them because there's all these competing magazines. If you look back in this era, you know, this magazine would last for two years. This newspaper would last for three years. They're just popping. There wasn't like, you know, this uh, distribution uh, infrastructure like there is now. There wasn't Amazon Kindle. There wasn't Audible and Barnes and & Noble and, you know, all these local, you know, small town bookstores. That just That just wasn't a thing. Uh, there was some money to be made in newspapers if you owned a successful one, which was very rare, usually in like a bigger market like New York or Boston. Uh, but even then, you know, there, there really weren't big national publishers making fortunes in, in, until the late 19th century after Edgar's death, men like William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer. So thanks to the times he lived in, Poe was only paid, for example, nine bucks for the original publication of The Raven. <laughs> He's given nine dollars. A poem, and that, and that made him fucking famous. Like, he was a household name after the publication of that. It was w massively popular. $9. That's roughly $277 uh, today when you adjust for inflation. He, over the course of his lifetime, he made a total of 14 bucks off the Raven. About $425 uh, in today's money. Jesus, man, one of the most famous literary works in American history made him enough money to pay for, like, one month's rent in a shitty studio apartment in a bad part of a small dying city. That is that is some classic starving artist shit right there. And Poe actually is one of history's kind of classic examples of a starving artist. I'm so fascinated by the relationship between art and money. You know, I guess selfishly, just because that's how I make my living. So fickle, man. It's so fickle. Think about this. Four of the movies Adam Sandler, Adam Sandler has made since 2015 have a 10% or less favorable rating on Rotten Tomatoes. They are arguably, and I know very well, very well, that art is subjective, but they are arguably terrible fucking movies. Like, terrible. And yet, <laughs> and yet he made $50 million in 2015. 
2017, off of terrible movies. 2015's The Ridiculous Six from Sandler <laughs> has a 0% favorable rating from critics on Rotten Tomatoes. 35 critics uh, affiliated with Rotten Tomatoes reviewed that movie. Every single one of them fucking hated it. All of them. Not a single critic thought it was just even, you know, average. <laughs> but when it came out in 2016, the most streamed movie in the history of Netflix. Uh, 2010's Grown Ups made over $162 million at the box office. 10% of 165 critics thought it was bearable. Thought it was just, you know, watchable. 90% were like, fuck that movie. Sandler's uh, wealthy beyond anyone's wildest dreams. And he's arguably not very good at making movies. As far as, you know, ones that are like, you know, critically acclaimed. Uh, Poe didn't have enough money to buy a second fucking coat. He was critically acclaimed in his lifetime. Uh, he was famous in his lifetime. And he, he did not have money to buy a second coat. He had one coat money. Think about that. I'm guessing all of you listening could scrounge up enough loose change if you needed to have two coats. Especially right now, because coats are cheap as hell because it's, uh, it's not coat season. Poe was a starving artist due to uh, also international copyright laws that uh, just didn't exist when he existed. Like, uh, for example, if you lived in the UK, you could reprint an American author's book uh, as many times as you wanted and not pay them a dime. There was no nothing legal to be done. And that happened. That, that happened specifically to Poe. He became wildly popular in, in Europe, much more so than he was in America, and made approximately zero dollars off of all his books uh, being sold over there. Fuck. How angry would you be? Can you imagine, man? Like, if, like, like, I feel like, like if you were like, hey, man, Royal Blood is it? That's a good band. So is Muse. I like it. Florence and the Machine. That's solid shit. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna print up some albums and open up a record store and just sell their shit and not pay them. You could do stuff like that back then. Uh, if I would be furious if I suddenly found out I was huge in like South Africa or the UK, and I, if I was somehow selling hundreds of thousands of stand-up album downloads, I would I would be stoked until I found out that some other asshole got to keep all of that money. And then I would want to find out where that asshole lived, and I would want to murder him. Uh, Poe earned a, a, a sum total of $6,200 for all the fiction he ever wrote. Total. Over about two decades. He made a total of $191,000 adjusted for inflation over uh, two decades. That is, that's, uh, that's less than $10,000 a year. He was a tortured artist who led a tortured artist's life. Now let's examine that life in detail with today's Time Suck Timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. Edgar was born on January 19th, 1809 in Boston, Massachusetts. He was born Edgar Poe. The middle name will come later, and we will see uh, see why soon here. Uh, his parents were actors during an age when they didn't really make much money either. So the life of a struggling artist was something uh, not totally foreign to Poe. It was in his DNA. His father was 25-year-old David Poe Jr., a man from Baltimore who trained to be a lawyer but abandoned his family's wishes for him to actually work as a lawyer when he became a stage actor in Boston. He was, uh, was an alleged alcoholic who abandoned his wife and child in 1810 when Edgar was only a year old and then is rumored to have died of consumption, tuberculosis, the following year in 1811. Consumption, man be a big theme in Edgar's life, unfortunately, would affect his life greatly. We talked about TB at length in one of my favorite sucks, the Doc Holiday suck, bonus episode 16. His, uh, his mother was 20-year-old Elizabeth Eliza Arnold Poe, 
a British stage actress who had come to America to act uh, as a young child with her mother, who was also an actress. Um, her mother had been a stage actress in London. A lot of artists in the family tree. And Eliza had debuted as an actress in Boston at the age of nine. And then she toured up and down on uh, the coast, uh, East Coast there, New England. Was very well received critically. A review in the Portland Herald said, Miss Arnold in Miss Biddy exceeded all praise. Well, David and Eliza had another boy two years before Edgar was born, his older brother, William Henry Leonard Poe. And Edgar would grow to hate William for getting two middle names when he didn't get even one. Some literary scholars cite Edgar's anger over this slight as his inspiration for writing The Raven. That's nonsense. Uh, there's no mention of Edgar being mad about William, who actually got, went by Henry for getting two middle names when he didn't get any. Uh, how, great, how great would that be, though, if that specifically was what fueled the career uh, of Edgar Allan Poe writing so many dark tales? Why am I mad? Why am I so brooding and forlorn? Can you imagine being born into a world with no middle name? only to find out later that your older brother had not one, but two middle names. Can you understand the rage that would build inside of you when you realize that your parents had put three times the thought into your brother's names as they had put into your own? A boy cannot thrive, and only one thrice the love of his brother. Damn you, Henry. Damn you, William. Damn you, Leonard. That is what truly quotes the raven, and he squawks it evermore, evermore. I changed it in my poem to Nevermore because I wish that someday I could forget the pain of those torturous three names that haunt me so. Now, 1810, uh, Edgar would have a little sister, Rosalie. Shortly after his father abandoned his mother, Rosalie would also not be given a middle name. Uh, well, hers would come later. Hers would come later, uh, just like Poe's. Her, her middle name, Mackenzie, would come later. So, you know, maybe that, maybe that eased the pain. On December 8th, uh, 1811, Edgar's mother, Eliza, would die of consumption and orphan her three kids. So that's not fun. Uh, and sadly, all three of them would be separated and be raised in different homes. At the age of two, tragedy has already entered Edgar's life in a major way. He's been abandoned by his father, orphaned by his mother. Both parents are dead, separated from his siblings. I mean, no wonder he didn't end up writing about sunshine, ponies, and living happily ever after. Henry went to live with his paternal grandparents, his sister, Rosalie, was adopted by the Mackenzie family, a family of some means. That's how she got her middle name of Mackenzie. She'd be, uh, she'd be raised under the close care of her new guardian sister, Ms. Mackenzie, a lady of elegance, manners, accomplishments, and well-educated. Uh, Rosalie was raised with a first-class education, grew up in high society uh, in accordance with her adoptive family's means. Correspondences between Poe and several relatives make it clear that uh, Edgar and Rosalie just really weren't close. She, she, she also may have been developmentally uh, delayed or cognitively impaired, which, which could help explain kind of some distance in their relationship. Because Poe would have a fairly close relationship with Henry, even though they lived apart. But he hardly mentioned Rosalie in his letters, seemed to avoid the topic of Rosalie when, when others brought it up. Uh, she would live the longest by far of the three siblings, reaching the age of 64 and dying on July 21st, 1874. Edgar <clears throat> excuse me, was sent to live with John and Francis Valentine Allen, in uh, Richmond, Virginia, and they are who gave him the middle name of Allen. Uh, so that's how he became Edgar Allan Poe. Edgar's mom, Eliza Allen, uh, or uh, excuse me, Edgar's mom, Eliza, Eliza Poe, had died in Richmond, and it seems that her acting friends in the area did the best they could to find homes for all the three kids. I wasn't able to determine if anybody uh, knows e exactly why David parents took only the oldest son, uh, and, then, and then the other two kids lived with non-family members. 
maybe maybe he smelled the best. You know, maybe who knows? I mean, who knows? I'm just throwing it out there. Maybe Henry smelled like lavender, but Rosalie and Edgar smelled like sulfur and the rotten clump of hair and dirt and rancid food that sometimes you pull out of a clogged sink. You ever smelled that? It's fucking unbelievable. You'll dry heave immediately, if not throw up. On the one hand, you know, it's heartless to do that. But on the other hand, who wants a fucking stinky kid? You know, I mean, that's going to negatively affect your life for nearly two decades. You know, if your house smells like rotten eggs, rotten hair and food goo instead of, you know, potpourri, how are you supposed to enjoy anything living in an open sewer pit? Sure, you could dip the kid in paint every few weeks, but now society labels you a child abuser just because you prefer the smell of paint to sulfur. And since paint always had lead back then, now your kid's brain damaged. So now you got a slow, stinky kid, even harder to raise. I guess what I'm trying to say is maybe the grandparents had good reason not to take in all the kids. I guess what I'm really trying to say is sometimes my kids stink and I don't like it. Monroe's sweaty socks after softball practice uh, might actually be able to, to strip paint off of walls. It's ungodly. But in all seriousness, there are rumors that the youngest child, Rosalie, was not David's based on when she was conceived and when David left and abandoned the family. So uh, maybe an affair was actually why he left. And maybe uh, it was also because acting critics uh, loved his wife but hated him. That was uh, something that was probably causing arguments in the couple. Uh, He was not regarded as a talented actor and allegedly suffered from severe stage fright, which makes you wonder why he even did acting. Uh, But maybe David's parents were only convinced that the oldest child was definitely their son. Maybe they only had the energy for one kid. I don't know. Based on letters uh, Edgar would write John Allen, sounds like his grandparents considered taking him in as well, but maybe felt like uh, John could give him a better life. Maybe John just couldn't take two kids. So maybe Edgar was the one got picked. And then Henry was the one, you know, that just didn't get picked. I don't know. I'm doing a lot of speculating right now. Back to the facts. John and Francis Allen, the couple who took Edgar in, were childless. They were excited to have a toddler around the house. John initially was anyways. Francis was reluctant at first, but then she would come to adore Edgar. Uh, Edgar would have a more complicated relationship with his adopted father. John was a a Scottish immigrant and a successful tobacco merchant who was not uh, overly affectionate. And he expected Edgar to follow in his business footsteps. And then was chronically disappointed in Edgar when Edgar didn't want to do that. Uh, Edgar did seem to have a close relationship with his mother, Frances, up until her death. Uh, John Allen, born in Scotland, 1794. At the age of 14, he moves to Richmond, Virginia, to live with his uncle, who was a very successful merchant. John works uh, for several years as a clerk for his uncle before starting his own business as that tobacco mer- merchant. Uh, he marries the much-admired Francis Keeling Valentine. Edgar was well cared for in their home, provided uh, a good education. And at and most times treated as a member of the family, at least in his youth. And it was from the Allens, again, that he got his middle name. Went to Edgar Allan Poe or Edgar A. Poe. You know, it was never legal, actually. Legally, his name remained Edgar Poe because uh, the family never formally adopted him. Edgar's relationship with the Allens, again, was complicated. They were a different type of people than his birth parents were. You know, his parents, you know, even his dad, they, as, as, as uncritically acclaimed as he was, uh, was still a big name amongst actors. Both his parents were. But actors were just not held in high regard by high society at that time. Uh, in, in, a, in a way, um, I think I, I think of his like parents, like uh, like his mom being a really good actor. It's probably like similar to being like a really good carny today, right? You know, his mom. You know, like uh, isn't that kind of weird sometimes? When, like you can be really, really good at something, but then society just doesn't really care about it. That's always unfortunate. I feel like uh, probably carnies get that. Like like what if, what if uh, what if you were like the best tilt a whirl operator? on the eastern seaboard somebody probably is you know the best at that and just no no one else gives a shit no one in the in the greater society just gives a shit what a weird talent to have that would be 
Uh, you know, because like human nature, you know, you're, you're proud of what you do, especially if you're the best at what you do. That would suck though if it's just viewed as pathetic by most of society. Dude, is, is it true that your mom is a carny? Carney, go fuck yourself, Ted, you arrogant, judgmental prick. My mom isn't just a carney. Becca Silverback Lupenstein is one of the most respected, if not the most respected name in the entire association of mobile entertainment workers. She puts twice as much tilt and three times as much whirl as any other mobile entertaining joy machine employee in the biz. Jesus, sorry, sorry, Pete. I didn't, I hadn't, I just, I had no idea. Hey, why is her nickname Silverback? Because she's built like a fucking gorilla, Ted. Like a silverback gorilla. Do you have anything else to say? Because I got elephant ears to move. All right? They're not going to sell themselves. Uh, anywho, Edgar's biological parents, poor, artistic, uh, dramatic. His adoptive parents, rich, stoic, business-minded. When Poe showed poetic talent as a young teen, it was discouraged by John Allen rather than encouraged or nurtured as it would have been by his uh, birth parents. Uh, yet he becomes an author anyway. Interesting argument for the nature side of the nature versus nurture parenting debate. In 1815, when Poe is six, the F- Allen family goes to Britain where Poe uh, went to Irvine Old Grammar and Boarding School in Scotland. Sounds terrible. In 1816, Poe rejoins his family in London where he studied at Manor House Boarding School in Stoke Newington for the next four years. Also sounds terrible. Uh, based on letters sent from John Allen to Edgar's schoolmaster, he seemed to be a good student as a young child. In a letter dated March 21st, 1818, John writes, Accept my thanks for the solicitude you have so kindly expressed about Edgar and the family. Edgar is a fine boy, and I have no reason to complain of his progress. So far, so, you know, so far as things are going good. When Edgar is young, does as he's told, doesn't live at home. Uh, In a letter to his uncle, dated September 28th, 1818, John writes, Edgar is growing wonderfully and enjoys a good reputation and is both able and willing to receive instruction. He's a good boy. Between 1820 and 1822, depending on which source you come across, the Allens and Edgar travel back to Richmond, Virginia. And in 1823, Poe meets and falls in love with Jane Stith Standard, the mother of one of his classmates. Not weird at all. He would later write uh, his his first uh, real romantic love, Sarah Elmera Royster, that Jane was the first purely ideal love of my soul. He told Whitman that Jane was the inspiration for his first version of To Helen a poem he named after her because she reminded him of Helen of Troy. Poe uh, po would say Standard was the truest, tenderest of the world's most womanly souls and an angel to my forlorn and darkened nature. Uh, multiple sources assert that Poe read uh, her some of his early poems and that she gently critiqued him. Standard was described as a kind and hypersensitive uh, woman, a woman who suffered bouts of melancholia and was near the end of her life uh, pretty obviously mentally ill. And But Poe, you know, he adored her. And, and it isn't believed that this was some sexual romantic love. You know, he's a lot younger than her. Uh, more of an adolescent crush. He was smitten with Jane, and Jane thought Poe was a sweet boy, and Jane was kind to him when he was at odds with his adoptive parents, the Allens. And then on April 28th, 1824, when Poe is 15, Jane uh, goes insane and dies of an unknown illness. Some scholars believe that consumption killed her. It's just said in numerous sources that she suddenly became, quote, very ill and died after she gradually went insane. Well, you know, Poe takes the death hard. After her death, he's said to often visit her grave at Shaco Hill Cemetery. So, you know, another parental figure, this time uh, kind of parental, kind of, you know, the beginnings of puppy romantic love figure dies. Uh, his relationship, you know, with his father seems to really sour around this time, as evidenced by this letter from John to Henry Poe, Edgar's brother, who, although raised by Edgar's grandparents, did keep in frequent contact with Edgar and his uh 
adoptive parents, the Allens. November 1st, 1824. Dear Henry, I have just seen your letter to Edgar and am afflicted that he has not written you. He has had little else to do for me. He does nothing and seems quite miserable, sulky, and ill-tempered to all in the family. How we have acted to produce this is beyond my conception. Why I have put up so long with his conduct is less, is little less wonderful. The boy possesses not a spark of affection for us, not a particle of gratitude for all my care and kindness towards him. I have given him a much superior education than ever I received myself. So the good boy now becomes a sullen teen. Man, am I hoping to evade that, avoid that same fate with my two kids. Don't, don't be dicks all of a sudden when the hormones kick in, Kyler Monroe. Also in 1824, 15-year-old Poe then meets uh, Sarah Elmira Royster, his first real romantic love. They become secretly engaged in 1825 when she's 15 and he's 16. She was a neighbor's daughter uh, whose father found Poe to be unsuitable, and Sarah's father intercepted letters from Edgar to Sarah. She claimed later in life that she received none of them, uh, and, and we will check in with her later because she does show up back uh, again later romantically somewhat with Edgar. Uh, when she was 17, her relationship to Poe is cut off by her father, and uh, she ends up marrying a businessman named Alexander Shelton who does very well for himself. Uh, Ada, a character in the first version of Poe's poem, Tamerlane, published in Poe's first book of poems two years later in 1827 by a 19-year-old Poe, was inspired by Sarah. And again, this is not the last Poe would see of Sarah. More on her in a bit. And uh, so, you know, he's, he's uh, not having not having the best teenage years, right? This, this lady he thinks is so awesome, she dies. And then, uh, you know, he gets his first romantic love, the first one becomes smitten with, truly, like, romantically. And, uh, and she is blocked from his affections by a father. 1826, 17-year-old Poe attends the, the newly opened University of Virginia in Charlottesville, just over 70 miles from Richmond. And the amount of help he was uh, uh, given to do so or lack thereof would cause quite the rift between him and John Allen that would, I kind of think eventually lead to the complete demise of their relationship. John gives Edgar just enough money to pay for school, but nothing more. So kind of a, kind of a dick move where like his classes and books are covered, but living expenses are not at all. No food money, no clothes money. Uh, basically, uh, John had come to view Edgar as being ungrateful for the life you know, that John had provided for him. And he was just done with Edgar. So he'd honor the deal. He, he'd likely made, you know, years prior with Poe's family to raise and educate the boy. But that was it. And there did seem to be some kind of uh, formal, you know, in a sense, I guess not formal, but uh, some sort of informal, I guess, deal made based on another letter. This one written five years later by Edgar to John it says uh, January 3rd, 1831. Sir, did I, when an infant, solicit your charity and protection? Or was it of your own free will that you volunteered your services on my behalf? It is well known to respectable individuals in Baltimore and elsewhere that my grandfather, my natural protector at the time you interposed, was wealthy and that I was his favorite grandchild. But the promises of adoption and liberal education which you held forth to him in a letter which is now in possession of my family induced him to resign all care of me into your hands. Under such circumstances, can it be said that I have no right to expect anything at your hands? You may probably urge that you have given me a liberal education. I will leave the decision of that question to those who know how far liberal educations can be obtained in eight months at the University of Virginia. Here you will say that it was my own fault that I did not return. You would not let me return because bills were presented, you for payment which I never wished nor desired you to pay. Had you let me return, my reformation had been sure. As my conduct the last three months gave every reason to believe, 
and you would never have heard more of my extravagances. But I am not about to proclaim myself guilty of all that has been alleged against me, and which I have hitherto endured simply because I was too proud to reply. I will boldly say that it was wholly and entirely your own mistaken parsimony that caused all the difficulties in which I was involved while at Charlottesville. So clearly, John and Edgar have a complicated relationship. Right? There was, or at least uh, Edgar believed there was, strongly, some sort of deal made. You know, there was a letter written between his grandfather and John, which I, which I got to say seems somewhat unlikely. Not that a letter was written, but unlikely that, you know, that Edgar really was like the favorite kid. But then this guy was like, no, no, I can give him a, a better childhood because, you know, his brother Henry, uh, you know, was not raised in poverty. Like uh, his grandparents did have money. And if he really was his grand, you know, father's favorite, you know, why did his grandfather, you know, uh, just just only take Henry and allow him to be to be raised by these other people? I mean, Poe was known to, to be an imaginative young man, one who romanticized his family. You know, so there, there could have been a deal like this or it could have been just, a, you know, uh, how he kind of wrote the story in his head. You know, it's, it's, it's easier for him to believe that John Allen, that he had this great opportunity with his grandparents. But then John Allen came and made all these false promises and then fucked everything up for him. Easier to believe that lie than the possible truth that his grandparents might not have cared enough about him to raise him, which, you know, uh, would not be uh, fun, especially considering the fact that his father had abandoned him. Who wants to believe that their father and then their grandfather also abandoned them? And the extravagances uh, Edgar was referring to in the letter were most likely gambling debts. Poe turned to gambling while he was at the University of uh, Virginia there to try and raise money for food, lodging, and clothing. Because uh, at one point, he, while attending the University of Virginia, he was so poor, he had taken to burning his own furniture to stay warm. Well, unable to continue at the University of Virginia, he does leave school after eight months, that eight months referred to in the letter. He's unable to pay gambling debts, and uh, John Allen is refusing to pay them. So he flees the state in 1827. When he's 18, you know, he's, he's afraid of getting stuck in a debtor's prison, which was a real possibility. That was a thing that happened to people back then. Up until the mid 19th century, you could be placed in special prisons specifically built for people who didn't pay their debts. And you could stay there until you either worked off your debt through labor uh, or until someone paid the debt on your behalf. And you could sit in there theoretically for life. Uh, you know, years and years and years, you know, if someone didn't pay your debt, because how are you supposed to raise money to get yourself out of debt if you're in prison? This is, uh, you know, partly why these prisons eventually became illegal. You know, in many instances, you know, you couldn't you couldn't leave unless the prison allowed you to leave the prison grounds. You know, you were able to, uh, you know, you really kind of had to either have somebody pay you the debt or like a family member or find somebody who basically turned you into an indentured servant. You know, um. Uh, yeah, terrible, terrible, terrible. With a with a sentence again of until the debt is paid, you, you could literally just stay there for the rest of your life. So to avoid that fate, Poe enlists in the army under a fake name. He goes into the army under Edgar A. Perry. He enlists in Boston on May 26, 1827, claims that he's 22 instead of 18. Uh, he also releases his first book anonymously that year, still uh, worried about debtor's prison, so he doesn't want to put his real name on it. It's a 40-page collection of poetry called Tamerlane and Other Poems, attributed with the byline by a Bostonian. Only 50 copies are printed, and the book receives virtually no attention. But he's, he's not discouraged. He continues to try to learn how to write or, or to you know make a living as an author. Still still harbors that, that dream. Poe then serves two years in the Army before asking to be discharged in 1829. He eventually reveals his real name and his circumstances to his commanding officer, a man named Lieutenant Howard, who said before being discharged, he would have to reconcile with his adopted father, John Allen. Poe then attempts to reconcile with John in late 1828, but doesn't uh, – or I'm, I'm sorry – 
yeah, late stage, age 28. But John wasn't interested in helping him out of the army any more than he had been interested in paying off Edgar's gambling debts. Then John's wife, Edgar's adoptive mother, Francis, the woman Poe called Ma, who did love him like a son, uh, comes down with a terrible and lingering unknown illness, and she dies in early 1829. Possibly, once again, consumption, although this is not definitive. Man, back then, people just got sick and died a lot. There was, uh, I was just talking to somebody about that this morning, talking to a local history teacher here in Coeur d'Alene about how history is just full of just pain and death. Uh, not a lot of conclusive diagnosis or, or, or yeah, with uh, deaths, you know, related to illness other than they just, they just got sick. They didn't always assign like, well, you know, they died of this. It's like, well, they got, they got sick and died. You know, just some family member like what, what kind, what kind of sickness did she get doctor? The kind that gets you died, of course. Yes. Yes. But, but what? Specifically, what disease was it? The deadly kind, you damn fool. I know. I know that she died of a disease. You fucking fucking moron. What disease did she die of? She died of a fatal disease, you uppity son of a bitch. You call me moron again, it's dueling time. So now at the age of 20, Poe has had his, his father leave him, seen the relationship with his adoptive father deteriorate, had his, has his mother die, had his, his puppy love friend's mom die. Uh, had his adoptive mom now also die. Small bit of good news comes his way in early 1829. The death of Francis seems to soften John. And John agrees to write Edgar's commanding officer a letter stating that they had reconciled their differences. And then Edgar, after securing another man to finish his enlisted term, is allowed to leave the army. Uh, after leaving the army in 1829, the 20-year-old Poe travels to Baltimore to stay for a time with his widowed aunt. Maria Clem, and her seven-year-old daughter, Virginia Eliza Clem, who's going to become a major figure in this story, Poe's first cousin. Poe called her sis or sissy around this time. Hopefully, years later, he would not continue to do so. You'll understand soon why I say that. Uh, Poe would stay at Maria's home off and on for six years, the house that was often packed with many relatives containing not only Maria, Edgar, and Virginia, but also Maria's son, Henry, another Henry, uh, an intermittent drinker, Poe's paralytic grandmother, who had been bedridden for two years, and Edgar's older brother, William Henry Leonard, now an alcoholic suffering from advanced tuberculosis. So much tuberculosis in this episode. Uh, sounds like a really fun place to live, by the way. Again, and again, no wonder he wrote dark, gloomy poems and stories, man. Uh, Poe's second book of poems, published in 1829, Al-Araf, Tamerlane, and Minor Poems, by publishers Hatch and Dunning. From everything I was able to find, doesn't appear that he made any money from this second book, but it did receive a highly favorable notice from the novelist and critic John Neal, which at least, you know, uh, gave Poe a confidence boost. You know, reaffirmed him that he did have a talent for writing. And, and it was the first book Poe didn't have to self-publish. However, still not making any money at it. And since his dad is not going to pay his way through life, he does need to get a job. So Poe travels to West Point, the military uh, school, and matriculates as a cadet on July 3rd. 1st, 1830, taking another crack at the military to make some steady money. Initially, it's noted that Poe does enjoy West Point and uh, does well at the academy. In one biography, Poe's time at West Point has him to described as the class satirist. Uh, during his time there, he, he conspires with classmate Thomas W. Gibson uh, to play a prank on fellow cadets. I love that he was a prankster. Uh, <laughs> Poe and, and, and Gibson trick some classmates into thinking that Gibson wielding a bloody knife had just murdered somebody. Uh, it's a solid prank, man. You'll stumble upon a group of friends with another panicked friend holding a bloody knife and convince them that you've, you've just come from a murder. Classic prank. Uh, after his first term at West Point, Poe allegedly decides, I guess he wants to leave the academy, so his, his happiness there doesn't last long. 
But again, he's not allowed to leave without John Allen's consent. Man, good God. Why did parents have that much power back then? Poe is 21. Why does he need his dad's permission for fucking anything? Such a different time. I remember when the dean of students at Gonzaga University threatened to call my parents when I got busted for having a party without a permit on school grounds when I was a senior, and I literally just laughed. I was 21. I was paying for school myself. I'm like, what the fuck are my parents going to do? Go ahead. Call them up. They'll get, they'll get a good kick out of this story. I was going to tell them myself in a few weeks, but why don't you go ahead? I'm sure I'll have uh, plenty of other mayhem stories to share with them soon enough. Yeah, that didn't, that didn't, that didn't work for me because it was a very different time. Things are, things are not going well with number, uh, dad number two again. John goes from being perpetually annoyed with Edgar to abandoning him. In October of 1830, John Allen marries his second wife, Louisa Patterson, and she does not care for Edgar. Edgar does not care for her. He feels like she's pushed her way into John's life to get at his money. She feels like Edgar is trying to get his money, and she wins. Uh, if, he, if he wasn't out of the will before, he's out of it now. And, and uh, which is unfortunate because he was counting on that will money to pay for his ability to make a living as a writer, right? Uh, it must have been such an odd feeling to be a struggling artist type and have rich parents. I guess, I mean, you guess you could, that could happen now. I don't know why I'm putting that in the past tense. It must be a weird thing. Uh, and I've known people that kind of have that relationship where they don't really make money on their own and their parents support them into adulthood. And uh, they never seem to be that happy with their parents, ironically. You know, these people who are supporting their adult lives and they're always like frustrated with them, I guess, because they still have like a childlike relationship. But that's got to be tough to be a struggling artist, to have rich parents who don't support you in life, but could possibly support you in death, right? Like if you're in the will, it would be so tempting in that situation to kind of root for your parents' death, which cannot, <laughs> cannot be psychologically healthy, you know, no matter how uh, angry you are at them, right? It'd be hard not to though on some level, like the motive's obvious. What a conflicted mental state that would put you in. I imagine Edgar must have felt that at certain times in his life. Like, God, if, if John would also just die, as long as I'm in the will, then I could fucking not have to deal with his, you know, looking down on me all the time. And I could just not have to take jobs I don't want to and just work as a writer. But he also, you know, you don't also want to feel like a monster that just roots for the death of your parents. But, you know, if your parents are not helping you achieve your artistic dream and they do have the means to, it would really benefit you if they died. Kind of hard not to want them to die, but ah, just very tricky mental place to dwell in. Uh, luckily, I do not have to worry about that. Uh, my parents are poor. Uh, I hope my dad lives a long time because I don't want his many, many creditors coming after me anytime soon. And uh, I don't want to get stuck with this bill, with the bill for his funeral. It'd be a, it'd be a huge headache. So no worries for me there. I'm not not rooting for, for his death. Uh, John Edgar would not have a good relationship again ever after John's marriage to Louisa. His father refusing to help him get discharged from West Point. Um... He tries to tries to make his hand as a poet. You know, he's not going to support him to do that. Poe takes it upon himself to get kicked out. And so he just basically just uh, becomes a complete dickhead at West Point and just constantly breaks rules so that they'll eventually discharge him, which they do in February of 1831. Here's some examples of the shenanigans he pulls to get kicked out. Conduct roll call for July through December shows Poe had 44 offenses, 106 demerits. 106 demerits second half of that year. Uh, he was not at the very top of the list for delinquents there. He was very close. Uh, he refused, started refusing to go to classes or church. 66 offenses for missing class in the month of January alone. He reportedly once showed up uh, near the end right before he got kicked out. He, he showed up to morning roll call in nothing but his boots. I love that. I love taking it that far. Just, just a blaze. Just like, come on, man. Just kick me the fuck out already. How many mornings do you want to have to stare at my dick during roll call? Ten? A hundred? We can take this as far as you want. I'm not putting clothes on anymore. So, you know, balls in your court. 
actually, both of my balls are in your court. So, hey, oh, you just got punned by a dude not wearing pants. Uh, well, after getting kicked out, Poe leaves for New York, releases a third volume of poems simply titled Poems. Uh, that book was actually financed with help from his fellow, you know, now former cadets at West Point, many of whom donated 75 cents to the cause, knowing he's trying to get kicked out, trying to become a poet, raises a total of $170 to have the book published. And while the book is published, again, it makes Poe no money. And he returns to Baltimore to live with his family, right? His aunt, brother, his, uh, his cousin, the rest. Uh, you know, that has to sting to keep coming back to this collection of random relatives after each failed attempt at striking out on your own. Uh, I got to say, though, I admire his dedication to the craft, right? Truly, truly was passionate about literature. Had numerous chances to make a decent living doing something else, live a normal life, and he just kept burning those bridges for his chance to produce his art. I do love that. More bad news for Poe in 1831. His brother dies of consumption now, sped up by alcoholism that August. He's only 24. Man, damn it. His brother had also tried his hand as a writer, getting a few poems published in some Baltimore magazines before dying far too young. And then, uh, you know, while grieving, amidst his grief in 1831, he does find love again, you know, a romantic interest. Mary Devereaux was a neighbor of his aunt Maria Clem, and and Poe would send over his 10-year-old cousin, 10-year-olds at the time, Virginia, old sissy, old sissy-poo, to carry love notes to Mary. In 1889, 40 years after Poe's death, Mary would give an extensive interview confirming that before she had ever met Poe, 10-year-old Virginia appeared on Poe's behalf, showed up at her house, her parents' house, and asked for a lock of her hair. So weird. How creepy is that? <laughs> I feel like that stuff doesn't happen anymore. Can you imagine, uh, you know, for, for the female time suckers, you know, you just knock at your door. All of a sudden, there's just a 10-year-old girl being like, my cousin would like to have a lock of your hair. He's quite fond of you. I'd have a good laugh at that, I imagine. But then he'd be like, get the fuck out of here. No, you can't. you can't have a lock of my hair. And who is he? I got to put him on a fucking, you know, got to let the police know about that. It's crazy son of a bitch. Well, uh, even weirder, she gives him, you know, the lock of the hair. Gives, so gives Virginia the lock of her hair to take back to Edgar. She'd never met him at this point. Uh, she stated later that he was passionate in his love and that his feelings were intense and he had but little control over them. Hot and heavy. Hail, Lucifina. Well, Mary stated that one night after they kind of start dating uh, and they become intimate, Poe doesn't show up. So they so they, they begin a relationship after the whole lock of hair incident. And then a little while later, Poe doesn't show up one night when he promised to show up. And then later he shows up smelling of liquor after having met up with some cadet buddies from West Point. She tells him to leave, but Poe refuses. They start arguing. And uh, Mary leaves Poe standing in the street, runs into her house. Poe follows, tries to get upstairs to her bedroom, but her mother blocks the way, tells him to leave. Poe insists on still talking to Mary, drunkenly shouting, I have a right. She is my wife now in the sight of heaven. Yeah, buddy, carnal marriage. They've done the deed, and he feels like he has a right to do more deeds. They're of one flesh now. Well, Mary's disgusted by Poe's lustful behavior, and she breaks off the relationship that night, breaks off all contact. Sure, she'd give a lock of her hair to a neighbor she'd never met, but she was not about to put up with his drunken sex talk. Mary concluded that he didn't value the laws of God or man. He was an atheist. He would just as well have lived with a woman without being married to her as not. I made a narrow escape in not marrying him. What a scoundrel young Poe was. Wanting that sweet lady whole action, but not wanting to lock it up with a ring. For shame. Uh, by 1833, after his early attempts at poetry, Poe turns his attention to prose. He places a few stories with the Philadelphia publication, begins work on his only drama uh, that he ever attempted, his only attempt at a play, uh, Politian, 
A few installments were released, and then after some poor reviews, Poe never finishes it. However, the Baltimore Saturday Visitor awards uh, Poe a prize in October of 1833 for his short story, Ms. Found in a Bottle, and the story wins him 50 bucks, most money he had made as a writer by far. And it brings him to the attention of John P. Kennedy, a, Balt- uh, a Baltimore guy of considerable means who, introduced, uh, who introduced Poe to Thomas W. White, editor of the Southern Literary Messenger magazine in Richmond. And Poe becomes an assistant editor of the periodical in August of 1835. And that was usually how authors of the day made money, right? Uh, you know, they would write their stuff, submit it, maybe get it published, but, but they would also have to work for magazines as, as, you know, as editors, critics, or regular contributors. And Poe po would end up doing a lot of that. Uh, even then, there still wasn't much money to be made. Uh, well, Edgar loses his first job. He, he loses his assistant editor job after just a few weeks for being caught getting drunk by his boss. So having just got fired, he goes back to Baltimore again. Back home, uh, you know, again in defeat to his family he, he has there in Baltimore. And then he does what a lot of 25-year-old men do. You know, when they've lost their job, they don't know what to do with the rest of their life. He courts his 12-year-old cousin. Not kidding. 1834, two big things happen in Edgar's young life. His adoptive father, John Allen, dies, and Poe learns that he has definitely, for sure, been left out of the will. And 25-year-old Poe expresses love, romantic love, for his 12-year-old cousin, first cousin, Virginia Eliza Clampone, the girl he's known as Sissy, the girl he has lived with on and off since she was seven years old, the girl he had passed love notes on his behalf to the last woman, he had dated. What in the fuck? Even for mid-18th century, this is weird. Uh, Eliza would be listed on the marriage document as being 21 to avoid scandal uh, when they'd later get married when she's 13. Guessing left out the part also uh, on the marriage document about being first cousins. Man, Poe went full Einstein. Fuck your cousin. Pass it on. Uh, remember how he's also a cousin fucker, Einstein? Well, Poe took it even further. He was a cousin molester. He kind of went full Woody Allen, right? He married someone uh, who had known him as a family member when they were a child. Uh, actually, he took it much further than Woody, Woody did. Uh, Eliza was related by blood and only 12. That's so. That's my son's age. Right? That's Kyler's age. The girls in his class are so clearly children. And Poe was a grown man when he met his cousin, uh, who was seven. And then five years later, he proposes. Did, did his proposal involve a trail of candy leading to his pedophile lair? What the fuck? Now, in Poe's historical contextual defense, the age of consent did vary in the U.S. at this time from state to state between 10 and 12. Ugh, 10. My daughter Monroe is 10. So clearly a little kid. That's so, uh, that was the, that was the legal age of consent. And yes, I did Google what was the age of consent in America in 19th century, which uh, probably did put me on some kind of watch list for potential pedophiles. I hope it did. I hope it did because that means that actual pedophiles are being put on lists. For the creepy shit they're looking up online. Legal or not, what Poe did what was unusual for its time. And uh, yeah, the added dimension of them being first cousins made it creepier. <sighs> Complicating things morally, Moe did seem to really uh, – Mo, Poe did seem <laughs> to really love her. And they did remain together until her death. I was, like, I, was, I was thinking like, does that make it better or worse? Like I really don't know. You know, write in with your thoughts if you have them. Uh, I think of in this situation, like Mary Kay Letourneau. Do you remember her? When she was 34 in 1996, this then sixth grade school teacher slept with one of her 12-year-old students, a student 22 years younger than she was, a child, a child my son's age, and she gets pregnant. 
which is so, 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 so fucked up. Uh, she was arrested. She pled guilty to child rape. Then in 1998, two weeks after she had just spent six months in jail, she gets caught sleeping with the same kid who is now 14 years old. And she gets pregnant again. And she has the baby again. Now they have two kids together. She's sentenced to seven and a half years in prison at this time. She has two kids with another child. She gives birth in jail, you know, to the second daughter. Then in 2005, after she gets out of prison, uh, they get back together immediately. And uh, and, and now the, the 21-year-old father of her two kids and her get married. And now they've been married for over 12 years. They're still married. Their oldest daughter is now 21, and her dad is 30 with 33. 21 <laughs> Your old uh, adult has a 33-year-old father. Fucking crazy. Uh, it wouldn't be that weird for her to date her dad's friends and for him to date her friends age-wise. It would be less weird than what, what he had done. So now is that more fucked up than Mary just sleeping with him like once and then never seeing him again? Or is it less fucked up? Uh, Mary isn't believed to ever had sex with or molested any other kids. And same with Poe. Poe isn't believed to have ever slept with or molested any other minor uh, just like Mary loved her student, he seemed to really have loved his young cousin. So does that make him like a true pedophile? Or did he, did he just like fall in love with one kid? Which is still fucked up. But is it, again, so much harder for me to condemn this when it's not some stranger like popping out of a van molesting kid after kid. So much more confusing when there's an element of what seems to be genuine love is misguided as I believe that, you know, that love is. How, how well, however messed up it was, Poe did it. And, uh, and then Poe tried to obtain a teaching position at Richmond Academy to take care of his, uh, his young family, literally young family. Uh, his second cousin, Nielsen Poe, who had married Virginia's half-sister, offered to take Virginia in and care for her until she reached a suitable age for marriage, as in 13. <laughs> On August 29th, 1835, Poe wrote his bride-to-be. This is such a messed up sentence. This is what he wrote his bride-to-be. Virginia, my love, my own sweetest sissy. My darling little wifey, think well before you break the heart of your cousin. I want to fucking throw up. How do you read that sentence and, and think and not think? Just, oh, my God, what am I doing with my life? This is terrible. This is really bad. I'm a cousin fucker. I'm a young cousin fucker. I'm a young cousin sissy fucker. Why don't, why, why don't, I don't need to write about monsters. I am a monster. Oh, May 16th, 1836, the 13-and-a-half-year-old Virginia marries the 27-year-old Poe. And then Poe buys her some lingerie for the honeymoon, but she declines to wear it, saying she'd feel more comfortable in some Winnie the Pooh pajamas. She would rather wear footy pajamas if that's okay. Uh, she also decline, declines his offer of wine in favor of some tropical uh, Capri Sun. Uh, clearly, I made up the lingerie part, and obviously the Capri Suns were not around then. Uh, just uh, it's so messed up. Poe uh, does genuinely adore Virginia. Uh, he stretches his income to help Virginia pursue lessons in voice and piano. Uh, Poe himself tutors her in the classics. Algebra, uh, Dick teaches her and Dick. <laughs> uh, Poe does. Uh, Poe does not get that teaching job. He is reinstated by White at the Southern Literary Messenger. He gets that assistant editor job back after promising better behavior. And he goes back to Richmond with Virginia and her mom. Uh, that's even kind of weirder to me. Like you know, mom's along for the ride. You know, so she clearly approved of the marriage. He remains at the messenger until January 1837. During this period, uh, Poe would claim that its circulation increased from 700 to 3,500. Uh, he publishes several poems, book reviews, critiques, stories in the paper. Witness accounts from the time uh, do state that Poe did not sleep in the same room as Virginia for the first two years of their marriage. 
but when she turned 16 or maybe it says two years, maybe like 15, 15 and a half, I guess they began a, a normal sexual marriage. It, if they weren't having sex already, it's just, ugh. so, you know, still creepy, but I guess, you know, I guess different era, different time. Hopefully they did wait till she's 16. You know, that, that you can, you can argue that's still too young, but, but it was very normal for that time and way different than 12 or 13. Still don't condone it. Still creepy as shit. Uh, in the summer of 1839, Poe becomes assistant editor at Burton's Gentleman's Magazine. The magazine includes poems, fiction, essays, has an emphasis on sporting life, uh, articles featuring uh, sailing, cricket, hunting, and more. Poe publishes numerous articles, stories, and reviews, enhancing his reputation as a critic as well, uh, which he established at the Southern Literary Messenger. And I, I keep forgetting to point that out, that he also you know, would, work, would work as a critic where he would review his literary peers who also reviewed him. And apparently he was a, a tough critic. Apparently he panned most of their shit savagely. And uh, <laughs> and that also hurt his career. He was really not well-liked by his con- contemporaries. How strange would that be? I would I would hate – there was no way I would I would take a job reviewing, like, other comics' albums, you know, and then, and, and then still keep doing comedy. How awkward that, would that be to run into them at a, at a comedy club doing a set somewhere? Good, good, good set, John. Was it a good set, Dan? Was it? Or was it, quote, another wasted effort from yet another overhyped Hollywood it kid? One star. Fuck you, Cummins. Uh, also in 1839, Poe's collection Tales of the Grotesque and uh, Arabesque was published in two volumes. And though he made little money from it, it did receive some positive reviews. Uh, Poe left Burton's after about a year, found a position as an assistant at Graham's Magazine, which had a little better circulation. Graham's Magazine published short stories, critical reviews, music, as well as information on fashion. And it paid the high price uh, for its time of $5 a page. And Edgar would go on to make tens of dollars writing for them. Uh, he would also publish his famous The Fall of the House of Usher in 1839. In 1841, Grams would publish Poe's short story, The Murders in the Rue Morgue, now recognized as the world's first modern detective story, a story that would lead to the genre that a short time later would produce Sherlock Holmes, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's, you know, uh, famous literary detective. Doyle also greatly influenced by Poe. More tragedy strikes in 1842 at the age of 20. Poe's young bride, Virginia, old sissy cousin, suffers her first hemorrhage from tuberculosis. Poe immediately knows she's been given a death sentence when he sees that blood and he starts looking for his next love. His niece, Dorothy, moves in with them. He knew, of course, he'd have to wait for Virginia to die uh, before him and Dorothy, you know, could consummate their romance. And he knew also that he'd have to wait for Dorothy to get older. She had just turned uh, 10 months old recently. And so, you know, he knew for sure he would have to wait until she was done breastfeeding at the very least. Uh, kidding. Sorry. I just I keep thinking of this guy as a pedophile now. Edgar remains devoted to Virginia during her sickness. She begins to lose considerable weight, becomes ill on January 20th, 1842. While playing piano and singing, a blood vessel in her throat breaks. Blood begins running out of her mouth. God, that'd be terrible. Uh, she would soon become an invalid after this first, you know, bout of consumption. And uh, Poe would struggle to, to financially provide for her the rest of her life. It was torture for them both. She'd seem to get better, then suddenly she'd get worse. That's kind of how the disease would work, you know. She'd be, she'd be seeming to be doing fine, and then another, you know, vessel would break. She'd have another hemorrhage. More blood comes out of her mouth, coughing up more blood. And this just kind of happens over and over and over. You know, what a terrible way to slowly die over several years. Poe's writing grows darker during this period. Of course it does. His world is constant misery. His writing also gets better and better, uh, but financial compensation, you know, still doesn't come. He can barely feed, barely house his young sick bride. He wears uh, clothes that become not much better than rags. 
He can only afford, again, I, I joked about it earlier, but truly could only afford that one coat he would wear for several years. Again, that's just so sad to me, that specific you know example. Uh, that coat would double as a blanket for Virginia because they didn't have room uh, money for blankets, not proper blankets on especially cold days. Jeez, man. He begins to drink more and more and more. He struggles with alcoholism, the same alcoholism that, you know, uh, helped kind of speed up the demise of his brother Henry and uh, and his father as well. And he also writes some of the best shit of his career. He returns to New York in 1843, where he works briefly at the Evening Mirror before becoming editor of the Broadway Journal and then later sole owner of the Broadway Journal. He alienates himself, uh, you know, further from other writers by publicly accusing Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, the famous poet of plagiarism. On January 29th, 1845, his poem, The Raven, a poem he wrote about his young wife, uh, well, kind of inspired, I guess, by her dying, his thoughts on that, appears in the evening mirror and becomes a popular sensation, makes Poe a household name almost instantly. But again, he gets only nine bucks for his publication. Uh, And then Poe's Broadway Journal, uh, the publication fails in 1846. He moves to a small cottage in Fordham, New York, in what is now the Bronx. The home since re- relocated to the southeast corner of the Grand Concourse and Kingsbridge Road is now known as Poe Cottage, a historical uh, protected home, historically protected home. Uh, Virginia dies at this cottage on January 30th, 1847, and Poe is inconsolable. He travels to her grave often, all hours of the day and night, weeping, grieving, grieving the what he considered to be the greatest love of his life, his, his soulmate for months. Biographers and critics often suggest that Poe's frequent theme of the death of a beautiful woman would stem from, you know, just the repeated loss of women throughout his life, including his wife. The next year, lonely, broke, and miserable, Poe makes several desperate attempts at love, uh, reaching out to uh, Sarah Elmira Royster again, Elmira Shelton, the old neighbor girl whose father tore up young Edgar's letters. She's a widow now. Her husband had made a lot of money and left her a considerable amount of money, and Poe asked her to marry him, and I guess she said yes, but then her children talk her out of it. Because there was this clause in her deceased husband's will that said if she did remarry, she would lose roughly $100,000 of his estate. And uh, and then they knew Poe would have to take care of her, and there's no way he could do that. Uh, and we're talking $100,000 in 1848 money, by the way, which is almost $3 million in today's dollars. So strange. Thwarted again in romance by Sarah's family roughly 20 years later. Uh, Poe also clumsily pursued a married woman named Nancy Locke Haywood Richmond. He pursued fellow poets, Sarah, Helen Whitman. He's kind of pursuing all these women at the same time in 1848. He's basically just asking anybody he thinks he has a chance uh, at marrying to marry him. Uh, the other Sarah also says yes, also thinks better of it and declines. Uh, he hits up relatives asking if they have any uh, any more young cousins he can groom. I mean, babysit. Uh, and then on October 3rd, 1849, Poe is, uh, is found delirious on the streets of Baltimore. In great distress and need of immediate assistance, according to Joseph W. Walker, who found him, he's taken to the Washington Medical College, where he dies a few days later on Sunday, October 7th, 1849, at 5 in the morning, at the age of only 40. Poe was never coherent long enough to explain how he came to to be found in his dire condition, and he was oddly wearing clothes that were not his own. He's said to have repeatedly called out the name Reynolds in his delirium uh, the night before his death. Though it's unclear like who he was referring to. Some sources say that Poe's final words were, Lord, help my poor soul. Uh, all medical records have been lost, unfortunately, including his death certificate. No autopsy was performed. and He was quickly buried. What a strange death for a man who wrote a lot about strange deaths. So what the hell happened to Poe? That's a big mystery, a big part of uh, Poe's story. Well, one th- theory is that he was beaten to death. 
at the instigation of a woman, Smith writes, who considered herself injured by him. He was cruelly beaten blow upon blow by a ruffian who knew of no better mode of avenging supposed injuries. It is well known that a brain, brain fever followed. Uh, other accounts also mention ruffians who had beaten Poe senseless. You know, and he was confrontational. He had a confrontational personality. So there is a chance that it was as simple as that. That he was out drinking, feeling, you know, fucking sorry for himself. He's having trouble with romance. He's, you know, still grieving his, his young wife's death. He's, you know, smarts off, you know, offends some uh, some woman in the bar. And this was, you know, at, at a time when, you know, if you said some shitty thing to some woman, her, her guy was just like, well, fuck you, man. And then people were going to step in between you and him and you guys were going to posture for a while. And then it just kind of goes away. And I'm like back then, you know, like duels could break out. You get shot in the street for that. Or at least, you know be beaten savagely, which is possibly what happened to him. Uh, Eugene Didier wrote in his 1872 article, The Grave of Poe, that while in Baltimore, Poe ran into some friends from West Point, joined them for drinks, and then unable to handle his liquor, became madly drunk, and then he left to wander the streets in his drunken state. He was robbed and beaten by ruffians. Uh, some, so many fucking ruffians in Baltimore. Apparently that town was rough long before the wire. Just nothing but fucking ruffians. Uh, an alternate beaten theory involves the practice of cooping, which I had never heard about. This shit is so interesting to me. So bizarre. And it seems that most historians give this cause of death the kind of the best Vegas odds of having, uh, happened. Cooping was a method of voter fraud practiced by gangs, by ruffians in the 19th century, where an unsuspecting victim would be kidnapped, disguised, and forced to vote for a specific candidate multiple times under multiple disguised identities. <laughs> You know, because they didn't have IDs back then. So voter fraud, extremely common, extremely common in Baltimore around the mid-1800s. And the polling site where Walker found the disheveled Poe was a known place where Coopers brought their victims. Uh, The fact that Poe was found delirious on an election day is no coincidence, perhaps. And uh, and this also explains better than other theories why he was wearing somebody else's clothes at the time of his death. You know, they might have just, you know, thrown him in a new pair of clothes. Fucking, you don't want to vote? Slapped him around a little bit. Make him vote again. You know, get him get him drunk. Make him drink a little bit. Throw him in a new outfit. Slap him around. And then eventually, they, you know, ended up kind of beating him to death. Over the years, the cooping theory, again, become to be one of the most widely accepted explanations for his strange uh, demeanor, strange behavior, uh, and, and, and cause of death. Before Prohibition, uh, voters were given alcohol after voting as a sort of reward. And if Poe had been forced to vote multiple times in a cooping scheme, you know, that might also just kind of help ex- 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 uh, explain his barely coherent state. And it's not like that theory can't be combined with other theories, you know? Maybe he did some cooping. Maybe then, after doing some cooping, some fucking ruffians found him, you know? Uh, they probably got pissed when he when he hit on their nine-year-old sister or pinched the bottom of their seven-year-old niece, some kind of creepy shit. Uh, there's also a chance he died of rabies because this was 1849 when people still died of rabies. Uh, rabies would explain the erratic behavior he displayed at the hospital before he died. That would be kind of crazy, man. The master of horror taken out by a mangy squirrel. Who knows? Maybe some ruffian slapped him around. Maybe he's laying in a fucking ditch and then a squirrel bites him. We don't know. Uh, one of the most recent theories about Poe's death suggests that uh, he succumbed to a brain tumor, which could have influenced his strange behavior before he died. When Poe died, he was buried rather unceremoniously in an unmarked grave in a Baltimore graveyard. And then 26 le- years later, a statue was erected honoring Poe near the graveyard's entrance. Poe's coffin was dug up, his remains exhumed in order to move uh, to the new place of honor. And, and then um, more than two decades of, you know, decay had not been kind to Poe or his coffin. 
little remained of his body, but one worker did remark on a strange feature of his skull that there was a mass rolling around inside of it. Now, newspapers of the day claimed that the mass was his brain, but we know today that the mass could not have been his brain because it would have definitely decomposed, one of the first parts of the body to rot after death. But Matthew Pearl, an American author who wrote a novel about Poe's death, uh, he's intrigued by this, contacts a forensic pathologist who tell, told him that the clump could have been a brain tumor, which sometimes calcify after death into hard masses, so maybe he had a tumor. Uh, and there's also a theory that he was intentionally murdered. Some speculate that he was still talking to that old neighbor girl from his youth, old Sarah, Sarah Elmera, Royster Shelton, and that he had talked her into marrying him, and that he was on his way to marry her, on his way down to Virginia to wrap it all up. Her brothers had caught wind of that and uh, and had him killed before he could ruin their sister's life by costing her that hundred grand, that three million in today's dollars. Gotta say, if that was the case, I don't totally blame him. You know, he probably would have ruined his sister, their sister's life, you know, and and caused their their children to also be poor. But my money's on the coupon. My money's on the coupon and the ruffians. And how poetically perfect is it that the inventor of the modern detective story, the man heralded by Stephen King and many others as the master of suspense, died a mysterious, unsolvable death? Uh, with no DNA evidence available, and all the suspects and eyewitnesses long dead will probably never know how he died. It'll just remain a mystery. Uh, we do know that the man who, over 150 years after his death, shows up on pretty much every list of the most influential authors in American history, did die for the most part, alone and penniless. And that takes us out of this Time Suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Death haunted Edgar Allan Poe. No, no wonder he wrote so much about it. Now, before the suck, all I really knew of him was that he wrote The, the Raven, and he had a spooky, gothic look to him. Uh, do you know The Raven, by the way? I feel like it has to be arguably the most famous poem in American history. I'm not a, I've never been a big poetry guy, but there are, have been a few that I, that I really love for sure. Uh, to me, this gotta be like top 10 as far as recognizable. Cause I don't know shit about poetry. And I, and I know that one, a horror poem. What a cool concept. Uh, the NFL team, the Baltimore Ravens actually named after that poem. Not kidding. A uh, football team named after a poem. Initially they had their three bird mascots uh, were named Edgar Allen and Poe. And then after the 2008 season ended, uh, Edgar and Allen were retired, leaving Poe as the sole mascot of the Baltimore Ravens. Uh, for the 2009 season, just for random trivia, Poe is joined by two real live Ravens, Rise and Conquer. Want to hear a little bit of the Raven? You do. You might not know it, but you do. It's a poem about a young man trying to forget the recent death of his beloved, written by a man living with his soon-to-be-dead beloved. Some creepy talking, uh, creepy talking Raven shows up, informs the young man he will not be reunited with his lover in heaven. The raven seems to possess, uh, you know, his soul or at least block the rising of his soul. It's left uh, open to interpretation. It's fucking poetry, so it's hard to say. Uh, here goes my sample reading of the, little, of the first chunk of the raven. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, clearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. "'Tis some visitor,' I muttered, tapping at my chamber door, only this and nothing more. Ah, distinctly I remember it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow, 
vainly I had sought to borrow. From my book surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore. For the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, nameless here forevermore. And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, "'Tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. Some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. This is, this it is, and nothing more. Presently my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer. Sir, said I, or madam, truly your forgiveness I implore. But the fact is I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here I opened wide the door, darkness there, and nothing more. Deep into that darkness peering, long I stood there wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore. This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word, Lenore, merely this, and nothing more. Back into the chamber turning, all my soul within me burning, soon again I heard a tapping somewhat louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is something at my window lattice. Let me see, then, what the threat is and this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a moment, and this mystery explore. Tis the wind and nothing more. Open here I flung the shutter, when with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance made he, not a minute stooped, or not a minute stopped or stayed he, but with mien of lord or lady, perched above my chamber door, Perched upon a bust of palace just above my chamber door, perched and sat, and nothing more. And then, you know, pretty soon he quotes, nevermore, and then he just keeps saying that, nevermore, 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 like, for the rest of the poem. So, you know, uh, apparently, back in the mid-19th century, that kind of shit just scared the hell out of people. <laughs> but it is, he sets this really kind of, you know, creepy vibe, uh, definitely throughout the poem. Yeah, I think it is spooky, right? The rhythm of the words, the word choices, the tone of dread and dreariness. And that poem made a poet celebrity of sorts. Kids would actually follow him in the street after that was published, uh, shouting, The Raven, and nevermore. Uh, well, recently, this is pretty cool, another Poe poem was found, previously unpublished, that I think is actually scarier, more dreadful. Uh, I think it would have made Poe an even bigger literary star in his day if it would have been published, and it was called The Butcher. So here goes a little bit of this, and then we'll, then we'll get out of poetry, poetry Excuse me, recitation. A bit of The Butcher. Wet sheets and the broth of beets, the butcher dreams of forbidden meats, softly, softly. Cold village nights bring dark delights, as the butcher looks for the young to fight, softly, softly. A few cuts and the bone turns firm, it's the butcher's turn to make you squirm, softly, softly. The stab of the knife is the last thing you feel. The last thing you hear is, what is big deal? Softly, softly. This monster lives not in some cold stone castle. He works at your school, and it's time to wrestle. Softly, softly. 
Will you tease him now? Dare you mock the butcher with his evil grin and his soft shame cock? Softly, softly. The butchers rock hard now, which means you're gone. What is big deal? He asked your corpse. Do you like my poem? Softly, softly. So there you go. Little Chikatilo Popo. Huh? Who's Chikatilo, you asked, new listener? A piece of shit Ukrainian serial killer who has become a recurring character on the show because we time suckers have a super fucked up sense of humor and I love it. No idiots at the internet today. Instead, I just uh, I devoted that time to write to that little ditty. Write a little, write a little Chikatilo poem. And again, you can learn about him at the end of the episode. Oh, that was fun. That was fun for me, at least. I hope you liked it. So, Poe, what an interesting life. How tragic in so many ways. Uh, what dedication to literature he had. Suffered so much for his craft. I do admire that about him for sure. Uh, I love comedy, but if year after year it just left me flat broke, if I didn't have the money to buy a second fucking coat, I, I don't know. If I would have stuck with it, I don't know. I admire how much he stuck to his guns. You know, he critiqued his contemporaries harshly, even though that was going to, you know, hurt his career further. You know, he was very brutally honest with them, which is a, a you know, kind of a, a cool trait. Now, there's definitely a lot more ass kissers than there are ass kickers out there in the world. Uh, the young cousin marriage is hard to reconcile. That's uncomfortably, but, uh, or uncomfortable, excuse me, but artistically, what a giant, what a pioneer. I mean, he shaped so much of modern American literary culture, which in turn has shaped so much of our film culture, which in so many ways just, you know, directly shapes our culture. You know, would there be goth kids without Poe? Would there have been Hitchcock? Would there be, uh, you know, all the police procedurals? Think about how popular those shows are, the Law and Order, the CSI franchises. In some way, all of that traced back to Poe. You know, would that stuff still be here without him? Or, you know, would somebody else who just have taken his place and we'd be inspired by them instead of him? Would be kind of in a similar position today? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. You know, how much of a, how, how much of a difference can one person make and make long after they've died? It makes me think about my own, you know, very small, comparably artistic legacy. You know, you got to take it seriously. Who, who knows how these silly little jokes might influence uh, other people? Who knows how this podcast might change somebody's life? Uh, you know, based on your, your emails, it already has changed some of yours. And then now your lives could change someone else's. Ever think about that? Like the butterfly effect? Think about that with your life, how you might change the future. Will it be through deeds? Will it be through influence? You know, maybe maybe you don't do something directly, but maybe the way you raise your kid or maybe the influence you have on some other person, some friend, some coworker could be fucking game-changing, magnificent. And then they end up doing something they would have never done had they not encountered you. You know, maybe you'll invent something that will change the course of human history, or maybe your invention will lead to another invention that does. So I guess what I'm trying to say is get out there and kick some fucking ass time, suckers. Right? Do something with your trips around the sun. Shape the future. Shape it in a good way. And uh, and try to do that with as little cousin fucking as possible, if you don't mind. Uh, time now for some top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one. Edgar Allan Poe changed the writing and publishing world before Poe. Not many were able to make a living off of solely writing, and no American, not not least uh, anyone of note, had been able to pull it off at all. Edgar insisted that writing would be his career, and he made major strides to find an audience for his entertaining articles, which would become the initial spark of the magazine industry. In many ways, he paved the way for writers to be compensated enough to have a career today. Number two. Poe introduced the first recorded literary detective in the Murders in the Rue Morgue. The detective character would lead to become the prototypical uh, detective we know of today. On a side note, a lot of people cite the word detective wasn't in existence in 1841, 
uh, for Poe to use in describing his lead character, uh, but it has actually been proven that it had been printed in 1840. So while he may have invented, uh, not may have, he did invent the uh, literary detective, he didn't invent the word detective. Uh, number three, Poe is considered by many to be the first master of the literary suspense and mystery genres, and his unusual death is a mystery to us still. Number four, Poe married his first cousin when she was 13 and he was 26. So, fucking gross. Uh, in addition to a literary genius, he was also an incestuous creep. Why do people have to be so complicated? Number five, new info. You can find numerous celebrities such as James Earl Jones, you know, Darth Vader, if you don't know, prolific horror actor Vincent Price doing their reading of The Raven on YouTube. My favorite is Christopher Walken. Do yourself a favor. Listen to at least some of Christopher Walken's reading of The Raven. It's nine minutes long. And as you would expect, uh, it's fantastically unusual. When I listen to it for added comedic effect, I like to imagine uh, Christopher Walken playing the random, totally unnecessary electric guitar riffs you hear throughout the reading. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Edgar Allan Poe. He's been sucked. I sucked him as if I was a teenage cousin. I had fun on that one. Not that I don't on others, but really had fun on that one. Hope you did too. Uh, big thanks to the Time Suck team, Harmony Velocamp, Jesse Dobner, Alex Dugan, Reverend Dr. Josh Krell, the Bit Elixir team, Danger Brain, Merch Maestro, Eric Radiker, Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins. Huge thanks to, uh, to two new members of the Bojangles Research Department team. Good boy, by the way, Bojangles. Good boy. Uh, those two new members are Kai Beamer, the humble space Hemptress. And Nick Wenzel, her lizard high priest. You two killed it. Thank you. Uh, coming up quick on Monday, another space lizard ordained topic. Those lizards voted in the Golden State Killer. And it looks like Tesla may not be far behind for the next space lizard topic as far as voted in. Tesla in a heated vote battle with the Knights Templar on the space lizard voting section of the app and website. How do you vote? You become a $5 a month Patreon supporter of the show and you kick ass as a space lizard. And uh, the Golden State Killer, man, we don't usually suck on a still unraveling case, so this suck will be will be ripe for some updates. This piece of shit allegedly committed at least 12 murders, over 50 rapes, and more than 100 burglaries between 1974 and 86. He was also known as the East Area Rapist, the original Night Stalker. Uh, he or someone claiming to be the Golden State Killer taunted police and press with his crimes, and then the crime stopped and the case went cold for decades. But investigators and investigative journalists never gave up. And on April 24th, 2018, just over a month ago, the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department arrested 72-year-old Joseph D'Angelo, charged him with eight counts of first-degree murder, and then on May 10th, charged with another four murders, all based on DNA evidence. How did they finally figure out it was Joseph? Why did it take so long to solve this crime? Uh, how many more crimes are going to be solved uh, with DNA evidence? We're going to dig into the life and crimes of America's current criminal obsession in just three days' time. Quoth the raven. Uh, and now let's find out what you suckers have been drawn to this past week with some Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. All right, starting off with an update on an update. Let's continue to discuss what it means to be a virtue signaler, right? That's a big term in 2018. Am I a virtue signaler? Not necessarily, says Time Sucker David Ranley. Uh, David wrote in saying, I'm sure someone else has already said this, but just in case, this is regarding the guy calling you out on virtue signaling. Uh, one of the main problems with virtue signaling is someone without being prompted saying something that makes them feel like a good person or whatever. 
But for you, we all tune into your podcast to listen to what you have to say and feel about whatever the topic is. So we're not, so you're not virtue signaling, in my opinion, because that is what we all signed up for, your take on the topic. You know, like if you took a hard left turn from Joan of Arc and said, the Holocaust was really bad, you guys, uh, <laughs> you know, that would be virtue signaling. Either way, love the show. I saw you in San Antonio, and it was the funniest stand-up I've been to. Uh, Hail Lucifina. Yes. Thank you, David. Uh, thank you, San Antonio sucker. Well, I like the distinction you made. People saying something without being prompted. That makes sense to me. Uh, what a good example, right? Like, like it would be ridiculous if during, you know, like t- today's episode <laughs> on Edgar Allan Poe, I suddenly just out of nowhere stopped to say, hey, you know what, you guys? I was just told that rogue warlords are killing kids in Africa. And I just got to say, I don't like it. It's not cool. Shouldn't kill kids. Shouldn't make them fight in wars. It's wrong. I don't care. I don't care what you know people think about that. It's not fucking cool. So anyways, uh, what Poe did as far as uh, increasing a character's psychological presence, yeah, that, that's a great, that's a great uh, way to determine what virtue signaling is. When it's uh, without being prompted, people are just randomly throwing in like, I don't like, that's bad. A uh, lot of uh, warranted French pronunciation updates been rolling in from my Joan of Arc suck. First one from Time Sucker, uh, John Harvey. Uh, John says, Lord Suckitude, in my moderately distant past, I managed to accumulate a number of music degrees so I can actually help you out on the composer's name in the Joan of Arc suck. The pronunciation is uh, Guillaume de Machot. Guillaume de Machot. Uh, Guillaume, excuse me, Guillaume de Machot. Yeah, there we go. Hard G is in ghost or gas. And he said, uh, Guillaume is, uh, is French for William. His music is actually really trippy. He's famous because he was uh, one of the first people in Europe to write anything that sounded like that. Give it a listen. Keep sucking. John. Well, thank you, John. Thank you for that help. I did listen, and it is pretty trippy. Uh, I could only take a few minutes of listening to Guillaume uh, here in the Suck Dungeon. It uh, feels like it should be listened to in like a giant cathedral or on some medieval battlefield. Maybe the kind of music you'd, you'd listen to when you, when you made love to a medieval maiden inside some castle in the 14th century. Uh, yes, and Time Sucker Jake uh, Barrett also pointed out, yeah, the French equivalent of William Guillaume uh, had an English pronunciation update coming as well from Sucker, Super Sucker, excuse me, Jeffrey. Jeffrey writes, greetings, master, uh, greetings, suck master, excuse me, just listening to the Joan of Arc episode and wanted to shoot you a message and clarify the pronunciation of one name. You mentioned Jeffrey of Monmouth's History of King Arthur and Merlin. And again, the name is pronounced Jeffrey, not Joffrey. And that's what I had said in the episode. I said Joffrey. It's a weird one I know. I can't tell you how many times people have used Joffrey and asked me. Uh, just, just to be clear, this uh, this time sucker's name is spelled the same way. Just G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y, uh, which is pronounced Jeffrey. And, uh, and I guess people say to our super sucker Jeffrey, oh, like the guy from Game of Thrones. And he says, much like my last name, I'm cursed. Hope this helps. Uh, Hail Nimrod. And yes, Jeffrey's last name is Asser. Man, uh, Hail Nimrod, Jeffrey. Getting your first name and last name butchered. I guess more likely your first name is butchered and your last name of Asser is just mocked. Asser, that's a, yeah, that's a tough one. You you can never start a law firm with two other lawyers if their last names are Liquor and Hole, right? Can't do that. Uh, Hey, uh, I'm Jeffrey. I'm here on behalf of Liquor, Asser, and Hole. Not going to be taken seriously. Uh, One more cool medieval update from Andrew Bailey. Andrew says, you mentioned the British longbow men in the Joan of Arc suck. Did you know they are directly responsible for the two-fingered salute? Uh, This was their way of showing the French that they had the necessary digits to draw back a longbow and inflict maximum pain on their Gaelic neighbors. Hail Nimrod. Well, you know, I had forgotten about that, Andrew. Thank you for reminding me. I've been told that many years ago and then blanked 
And uh, yeah, historians disagree on whether or not this actually happened. But according to legend, uh, and and uh, the that did happen that they would pull back their bows, those two fingers, and then they would show the fingers to the enemy, like ha ha, fuck you, I can still kill you. And uh, and in Britain and some some other Commonwealth nations, um, that is how you kind of flip somebody off. It's like you use the the, the middle and index fingers. You bend the other fingers at the second knuckle and then with your palm facing yourself. So it's basically a backwards peace sign. That can mean like, fuck you still in the UK. And, uh, and again, yeah, legend does hold it. It comes from the hundred years war. And, uh, when the, when the bow archers would, would, uh, show that they still had the fingers to kill. Uh, I wonder where the middle finger in America comes from. I don't know if it derived from that. I haven't looked that up. If any, if any, of you know, that'd be a fun update as well. Where, where did we get our fuck you? Where did it go for? How did it go from two fingers to one? I don't know. Let's find out. Uh, and that's all for this week's Time Sucker Update. Stay tuned for those character summaries now. Thanks, Time Suckers. I needed that. We all did. All right, Time Sucker, maybe you're new to the game. Maybe it's just been a while since you thought about our cast of strange characters. Who the fuck is Nimrod? What's up with the Chikatilo reference? Well, I'm here to help today. Let's start with the oldest gag and character in the Time Suck canon, Michael motherfucking McDonald. This joke goes all the way back to Time Suck 22, uh, which was Al Capone's Valentine's Day Massacre. The initial seeds for organized crime in Chicago were sown in the late 19th century by a gangster who happened to be named Michael McDonald. He was actually Michael Cassius McDonald. At the time I was working on the episode, I was listening to a lot of Yacht Rock on Pandora, and the name made me think of the musician Michael McDonald. And then I randomly snuck in me singing one of his songs. Just minute by minute by minute by minute. I'll be holding on. May have been that one. Maybe another one. But I snuck in one of his songs. And some people thought that was funny. Some others hated it. And it just cracked me up. And I felt like doing it again and again. And, uh, and I would just uh, came up with the term McDonalding somebody. So Time Suckers would then complain. They got McDonald. Uh, McDonalded, excuse me, because his, his songs, you know, can get stuck in your head for days. And then it just became a gag. And then later, he became Michael motherfucking McDonald when he showed up in a cameo in some other episodes fighting communism. I just randomly assigned the attribute that he was a communist uh, freedom fighter. It's funny to me. He morphed into this kind of government agent, secret assassin type, time-traveling ass-kicker who uh, also happens to have the voice of a Yacht Rock angel. Basically, the joke with Triple M, as he's now come to be known, is that he can do no wrong. He's kind of like the Dos Equis, most interesting man in the world, combined with the old Chuck Norris jokes. Combined with, uh, you know, Grammy-winning Michael motherfucking McDonald. Nimrod is the second oldest joke in the Time Suck mythology and, uh, and also the oldest non-joke ever for he's an immortal god. Now, but he's the god of Time Suck and he originated in the Scientology Suck. Where I was trying to talk about how you, you know, in, in, when I was talking about how, you know, Scientologists get mad that people don't treat their religion seriously. And I'm like, well, yeah, but you don't get to just make up whatever god you want in the modern world. And just uh, immediately expect people to respect your your right to worship it. Now, as an example, I talk about like, well, what if I just, you know, made up some god Nimrod, some giant space Sasquatch with, a, with the size of a galaxy, the, the, the head of a chupacabra who rides a black unicorn with flaming suns for eyes, who demands that I stomp in the skulls of a cocker spaniels once a month to prove my obedience. Right? And then I get to live in his uh, forever in his heavenly ball sack, one ball being the alpha, one other being the omega. And in a later episode, the Kurt Cobain suck, I introduced hell as being located in Nimrod's butthole. But I was like, oh, you know, I can't, if people show up, I'm like, hey, man, we got to arrest you. You stomped a bunch of Cocker Spaniels. I'm like, no, it's my religion. And then ironically, me making fun of one God by introducing uh, another seemingly more ridiculous God did seem to bring that second God into uh, existence in some way. And now he's here to stay and we hail him. And we just, you know, we wait to hear what his will is for us. So hail Nimrod. 
Uh, after a while then, it didn't seem right to have a god but not a devilish companion, and that's where Lucifina came to be. Lucifina first appeared in a, in a bonus episode nine, The Salem Witch Trials. Time suck. One of, still one of my favorites. When she was introduced as an explanation of why I mess things up from time to time. Why my mush mouth messes things up. Well, it's not my fault. It's Lucifina's fault. And I brought it up, I think, in that example of, you know, how it must be nice just to be able to blame any bad thing that happens to you on the devil. Like, God, fuck, I, I tried to get there, but the devil has been fucking messing things up for me. So that became kind of Lucifina's initial character, you know? And then it was this initial thing of, be gone, Lucifina. You know, it was revealed later that Lucifina was Satan's sister, the only entity the devil is afraid of. And, uh, and then, however, kind of, then she morphed over time and became kind of less evil and more mischievous. She became the, the suck symbol of sexuality. Right, became merged with my fantasies of, of pinup models. Right, no one's sexier than Lucifina with her pinup curves and her sultry style of dressing up in fishnet stockings and heels. Now, why does she dress so seductively? So she can distract us. Right, she's distracting me away from focusing on the suck. Again, no mistakes are my fault. It's all Lucifina's doing. And then she just became kind of beloved by a lot of time suckers, and it went from begone to hail Lucifina. Uh, Bojangles, sweet Bojangles, the first star of the suck, uh, the good boy. Uh, he's a complicated character. Bojangles is the third oldest character, became the show's mascot, and he showed up for the first time in the Marilyn Monroe suck over a year ago. First appearing as a one-eyed, three-legged canine, le- canine leader of a pack of feral pit bulls. So I made some crazy joke in there about Marilyn Monroe's, uh, I think like, like her, I think she was like adopted. I'm trying to remember. It's been a little while, but her her brother, it doesn't really matter, but it was her brother or, or brother through adoption. I, uh, I think it was my first misdirect, actually, where I said that he'd been eaten by wild dogs. And I was like, just kidding. And then the dog thing kind of got in my brain. And then it became uh, Bojangles. And then later became known that he's an immortal god. He once, you know, fought Zeus tens of thousands of years ago in this battle that caused the city of Atlantis to fall into the sea. And the Atlantis suck. During that fight, that's when he lost his eye, lost his leg. And then he started working with Triple M from time to time on covert government missions. James Ingram, there's nothing he can't do. He's arguably the toughest character, the most tenacious. I doubt even Lucifina could really fuck with Bojangles. Right. Uh, she may have actually fucked him, though. He's also a hit with the ladies of all species. Right. He's also uh, somehow become the head of research. And he also beats me up from time to time. When he doesn't like uh, what I'm doing with the suck or he just you know, doesn't like what I say about him. He basically does whatever he's wanting. He's the coolest of all the characters. He's like a badass Tom Hardy character in three legged one eyed pit bull form. And he can do more without a leg and an eye than uh, than, you know, most people can do with all their limbs, both their eyes. He's become a symbol of hope, really. Right. Don't complain about your disadvantages. Right, if Bojangles can get out there and kick a lot of ass, missing a leg and down an eye, what's your excuse? That's what Bojangles does. He's a fucking inspiration. Uh, Pootie and Juju, who are those knuckleheads? Well, they showed up more recently in the Stalin suck, where it was revealed that Lenin was a fan of these early 20th century American comic book characters. And ever since, they pop up from time to time as new episodes in their comic mythology are revealed. Basically, Pootie and Juju are roommates who argue a lot uh, and have many adventures. They're, they're known mostly for catchphrases. Such as, put it in your lunchbox, Shirley. And too little, too diddle, pooty. And, uh, and no matter how hard they fight, they always seem to work things out in the end. Just like we do here on Time Suck. Right? They're symbolic of you can disagree, you can argue, but then you work shit out. And they're Time Suck show within a show. And then there's Chikatilo. Oh, Chikatilo. Arguably the most popular Time Suck character. Also, it's worst. Uh, Chikatilo originated, of course, in the Andre Chikatilo Butcher of Rostov episode. His biopic. The real Chikatilo is a Ukrainian serial-killing piece of shit who was put to death in the 90s after killing over 50 Russian citizens, mostly women and children. Somehow we soften this monster, turn him into a lovable yet still murderous character. Uh, the real Chikatilo suffered from impotence. 
but also strangely loved to masturbate, which I just found very funny. Uh, he was caught masturbating by coworkers, by some of his students, I'm guessing by members of his family, even though that was never explicitly said. Uh, but he couldn't get hard unless he was attacking somebody. So usually he was just jerking off and he was really into it. Uh, a semi-limp penis. He even jerked it off during his uh, trial. A uh, shamecock, if you will. And so, uh, you know, he turned into this character who doesn't understand why people just get so upset about him jerking off his limp dick in public. And he has his own catchphrase. Says, what is this big deal? I jerk soft shamecock in corner. I bother no one. Eat. Go ahead. Go eat. Enjoy your meal. I'd be over here jerking and no one bother. No one bother. Uh, as time has gone on, he's just gotten weirder. Uh, and, and I think he's a good example of, you know what? You can cry about terrible things in life or you can laugh at them. So we laugh at the darkness here on Time Suck. And Chikatilo is a terrible, dark thing. And we laugh at his expense a lot. And then uh, maybe one more. Pineys. There is the, the Pineys. They come up uh, a little bit uh, with their terrible puke song. You know, well, uh, I learned about real Pineys in the Jersey Devil episode. It's a term akin to hillbilly that was historically assigned to the rural and generally uneducated residents of certain parts of Jersey's Pine Barrens which is a large chunk of thick forest in central New Jersey. And for a time, especially like early 20th century, late 19th century, inbreeding was rampant among this population. Like it was a real problem. And hygiene and proper nutrition was low. And so, you know, I wrote a little ditty about a New Jersey governor being so disgusted when he came to check on the Pine Barrens at the sight of one piney that he literally threw up on her face. I said, uh, they were so unfortunate looking, he vomited all over their dirty piney faces. And these two degenerates, these two pineys, far from being offended, were happy to have a free meal. And they licked most of his puke off each other's faces and then out of each other's beards. And then they fucked right in front of him, both making steady eye contact with the politician while they did it. And then the moment they were done, a newborn gremlin popped out of the woman's butt, snatched the startled governor's wallet, ran up to a tree with it. And then the gremlin's parents broke it out into a little banjo duet. Hey, look at here now. I got some puke. Touch his puke. Ever did lick out of my woman's beard. Well, looky here now, with the full belly, I made a butt baby with the woman on mine. And the governor's wallet we got. And <laughs> now, uh, either a uh, piney or some version of that song or both tend to show up occasionally here on the suck. And there's countless other little jokes here and there that, you know, just come back from time to time. There's sea chickens and other random things. Uh, so far, those are the main ones. And uh, I hope that brings you up to speed a little bit. I know it's way more fun to be on the inside of an inside joke than on the outside. And, uh, and that's all for today. That's all for today. Have a great weekend. Don't set your romantic hopes on anyone still in grade school or uh, or younger or related to you unless uh, you yourself are in grade school or younger and then still not when they're related to you. And keep on sucking. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.